I'm Alex Mosen, and welcome to Winner Take All, where we talk about the constant battle to fight back and win against big tech. Uh, we have a number of topics today. We're back in the Florida studio. Uh, very pleased to be joined by Tree Tran, a managing partner at Applico and uh, co-founder and former CEO of Munchery. Tree, great to have you with us. Thanks for having me. So what we wanted to talk about initially while we have you, Tree, was uh, this topic on, you know, there's a lot of activity in the, in the building and construction space, uh, both just in general with, you know, uh, new, new home starts and all, all the home renovations uh, going on these days, but also with tech and tech investing. And now, uh, tech M&A with this news here, Procore has acquired this construction payment startup, Level Set, for $500 million. What is Level Set? What is Procore? You know, it'd be great if you could help break this down for us, Trey. Procore is a, um, uh, I, I would say it's a, a, a SaaS platform. Uh, they are a, um, uh, attempting to uh, be the be all and end all uh, solution for the entire construction industry. Um, uh, and, and we know the construction industry and the construction cycle is extremely complex, right? Any, anything you've got from conceptions uh, as a first stage where you, you are thinking of a project, you're getting financing to a project, to you know, design and engineering where you're like, you know, using things, tools like Autodesk to uh, lay out a, a plan for a building, for example. Then you got pre-construction, you got, you know, procuring materials to actual executing of the construction itself. Uh, and then there's a whole post-construction uh, phase uh, as well, you know, warranty period, fixing, you know, uh, checklist, uh, things that, that didn't exactly go as planned. Um, so Procore would be a, a set of tools and they are now having also an app marketplace where they provide a lot of uh, amazing uh, project management tools, uh, building information management tools, uh, tools to, to help keep a, a project on track. It's an end-to-end -end software solution, right? Th throughout the whole construction lifecycle process. Right. They do, they do start out with the, the whole pre-construction and construction execution phase. That's their, that's their route, uh, but they're definitely expanding to offer. And so what about this level set thing? Uh, you know, I've got it up here on the screen share. It looks like this company raised $47 million in aggregate. Um, their last fundraise was December 2019. They had a $135 million valuation. So that was, you know, almost two years ago. They'd raised $30 million then. So in, call it 18 months, they more than triple their valuation. What makes this thing so interesting and, 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 and why it's worth being, I think, Procore's largest acquisition ever? Procore, this is not uh, their only acquisition in the last year. They also acquired an AI company and you know, other kind of uh, project estimations company. Uh, but I think specifically about Level Set, uh, which is the main offering here is a Lean's uh, rights management and, and lean waiver uh, solutions uh, where this is the, the mechanism in the industry on how, let's say, a contractor would get paid. Um, you know, the, 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 the contractors finishing a job, 
you would think you know getting paid for it would be an, uh, a straightforward manner but it isn't uh, all, the, all the regulations all the the uh, I think regulatory uh, and rights on hey did you do the job as as spec that you do the quality job I think all these tools and mechanism on ensuring this is done and paperwork for that tracking that uh, is what Le level set provides and and really helps Procore see I think more importantly all the payments that's being done or not being done and so they can assess risk for a project they can apply machine learning and AI to understand better uh, for a certain phase of a project or a certain aspect of a project where the risk lies and where you know payment is being done well or not uh, so I think it's extremely valuable uh, to the entire platform that that Procore is bringing to the table I like that they touch the money. I think that's the thing that gets it for me is they touch the money, you know, these, these lean rights management waiver solutions, it's highly technical. The average person, you don't need to understand this, but the point is it, it puts Procore into the flow of touching dollars, right? So, so it's, it's kind of now bringing this payment platform workflow um, into the Procore tool set. So any, anytime you can touch the flow of dollars, that's a good thing. And then the other thing is that materials financing bit, which I think is very powerful. How can you bring lending solutions? And they have it here two ways, both uh, for the contractor to get financing as well as on the supplier side, right? So, um, you know, I, I love this kind of material financing aspect. I think that's a huge, huge opportunity uh, where, you know, what you find is a lot of the people in the construction industry actually don't even make money on kind of what you would expect. It's, it's actually kind of a lot of these ancillary revenue streams, which can mean a lot of different things based upon where you are in that value chain flow. But yeah, I think, I think there's something interesting here. Biggest deal they've ever done. Procore has a $12 billion market cap and uh, they're on, you know, $12 billion market cap on $122 million of revenue for the, for, uh, the quarter ending in June on, on, on that quarterly revenue number. So extremely high revenue multiples, uh, but a very different margin profile. Well, and they're actually losing money, but, you know, uh, lots of growth. You know, growth is the story with all of these tech companies. You can't uh, have that little revenue and lose money without having a strong growth story. So they got to keep their, their foot on the gas. But generally, I like the play of touching the money. Any last thoughts there, Trey? No, you're right. And look, materials financing is a big part of any construction project, obviously, uh, besides the labor. But um, it looks like Level Set doesn't yet have a network of, of lenders uh, to, to assist with that. Or maybe they do, but they're not making it a, an open platform for lenders to participate. But I can imagine that can also become a, a, a future direction they can go into, right? It, because right now, if they're the only one offering the credit, uh, then they have to you know, take on the responsibility and, and the liability. Uh, but yeah, really interesting, really exciting uh, to see this happening and Procore just keeping making stride. I think they got from 8 billion valuation uh, during IPO to, to now 12, like you said. Tree Tran, thanks so much for joining us. Talk soon. Yeah. Thanks. Bye. So that's a great way to, to kick us off. There's a lot of stuff happening in, in the building and, and construction space. Um, not, not only, uh, 
with 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 tech investments and this kinds of things, but inflation, and that's going to be our uh, topic right after this. But it's actually related to this, and that next topic is labor shortage and labor shortages. Uh, and and the classic example of this, we did a video, maybe 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 last episode, two episodes ago. This clip here, the gig economy may be causing the labor shortage, and we talk about. Over 90 million Americans are actively participating in the gig economy. And we had a great comment here uh, from Adam M. He says, I was a heavy line mechanic for 17 years and I made $1,000 a week working 40 hours a week. I quit. And now I do odd jobs and assemble furniture for $800 to $1,200 a week, working maybe 25 hours. Compared to what I used to do, I don't really labor anymore, and I have tons of energy to do other things in my life. Uh, I love being a mechanic, but until wages reflect the effort, I'm going to have to keep having breakfast beers, you go, Adam, uh, and assemble IKEA furniture uh, with all the existing tools and stuff and equipment that he already has, has thousands of dollars worth of tools, and he's using them to put together IKEA furniture. I mean, A, I love it because it just, I love our audience. And I think we have such a, such a great audience of, of uh, uh, you know, listeners that, that bring really insightful thoughts and feedback, which I love. So keep that coming. But I think it's a great example to show that this labor shortage is not vanishing, right? It, it was supposed to be fall of 21, right? Everyone said, oh, yeah, you're going to have some inflation. It's going to be it's going to be a transient. It's going to be temporary. It's going to go up in the summer and then it's going to come down in the fall, right? Well, once the uh unemployment benefits go away, then you know, it's going to be gone, right? We can play the tape for months and months and months, basically the entire year I've been saying that's not the situation. Um and I think this gig gig economy play is part of it. I think the other part of it is just sheer incompetence on behalf of uh, government officials um, that have absolutely continued to exacerbate it. And I'm going to get to that right now as another example. This one coming out of CNN, the workers who keep global supply chains moving are warning of a system collapse. You read this article and this article is terrifying. It talks all about the maritime shipping industry, which I'm going to talk about more uh, in the next couple of clips here. But it talks about um, you know, a letter sent from the International Chamber of Shipping and other industry groups warning of a literally a global transport system collapse if governments do not restore freedom of movement to transport workers and give them priority to receive vaccines. And that is actually a lot more to this. So you have all these workers after weeks on board a ship. Seafarers can only leave a vessel in order to travel elsewhere, usually to return home. And Basically, all the folks on these ships, because all these governments that they're delivering goods to on these ships have different COVID rules. That means that some of these workers have not been able to get off of a boat for months. If they can get off a boat, they're super restricted. So, you know, imagine literally traveling across the ocean and then you can't get off the boat because of COVID protocols, even when you're vaccinated, by the way. Some of the people in this article have been vaccinated over five times just because, you know, every government had different rules and what you need to show if you've been vaccinated, this and that and all just the chaos. And they just say, sure, just, you know, 
give me another vaccine so I can get into the port, right? And like go have a, a shower and, and, you know, some, some clean sheets or something, right? To ask too much. So it's basically talking about the insanely harsh living and working conditions for the people in the maritime industry. And, you know, then you go to wonder why the cost to ship um, a container has gone up 500%. Um, It's literally 5x what it used to be roughly a year ago. And so this is one example of, you know, really just uh, uh, government rules creating uh, harsh conditions and, you know, putting the workers uh, at a disadvantage or, you know, saying, yeah, you know what? I don't want to do this work anymore. I'll go join the gig economy or I'll just go find something else to do rather than subject myself to this lifestyle and be away from my family and, and then, you know, not make materially any more money. And that's where it's, there's got to be a rub, right? Um, so that's this kind of global shipping collapse or one of the, you know, a few of the examples that this article is talking about. That's just the people on the ships getting the stuff from point A to point B, right? A kind of over the oceans. Then you've got the other part of this shipping fiasco chronicled here in this Business Insider article. This is the one where they have the stat about um, a 500% increase. Every one of these stats is bad. And, and every month it's getting worse. It's not getting better. So this is monthly data, right? So this is looking at, you know, July to August, August to September. And so it's saying over the past week, the queue of ships waiting to unload at the ports in LA and Long Beach have lengthened by 10 ships. On Friday, the ports had 65 cargo ships, right? So 10 ships, the material increase, that's like 20, roughly over around 20% increase. LA and those ports account for 40% of the maritime shipping uh, volumes that come into the entire United States, right? It makes sense uh, from the, you know, the Asian routes. Average wait time for vessels is about 8.7 days, up about 2.5 days longer from the same time a month ago. These are material increases, right? Uh, that's maybe what, uh, a third of an increase from a month before, right? So it's not it's not getting better month over month. It's actually continuing to get worse. So you've got horrible conditions for the people on the ships. Then you've got issues uh, with the actual labor to get the stuff off the ships. So some of these articles will blame the fact that, you know, the boats have gotten bigger. They carry more containers on the boat. It takes longer to unload the boat. Fine. <laughs> Here's, I think, the, the, the real nugget in here is this other article. Officials also explained there is a lack of trucks and the freight rail isn't allowing a steady movement of cargo out of the ports fast enough. Freight rails at capacity, right? That's railroads. Only so much stuff, only so many trains you can run. That thing is tapped out. Where are the trucks? This was exactly the topic I was talking about last episode about the gig economy, about the trucking shortage that we've had for years in this country. How it's only gotten further exacerbated. And I think a great example by Adam M., our viewer and commenter on our gig economy viewer uh, uh, video, giving a great example about just kind of saying, you know, enough was enough. And I and I'm actually making the same amount of money 
and working a third less time by just being on the gig economy. And I get to work from home and all these other kinds of perks. That's the kind of stuff that's happening. There's one other article here, which I thought was had a good graphic. Let me just show you this graphic. Uh, this graphic was pretty good. So um, percent increase in average containers per ship from the first half of 2019 to the first half of 2021. So this is showing that everyone, you can't get the ships in and out. Now everyone's loading up the ships. You've got a 73% increase, right, in, a, in that two-year time period in the average containers per ship, right? But the interesting thing in this article is all they do is talk about more containers on the ship. All they do is talk about it's easier to put stuff on a boat than it is to take it off. But this article, for example, all the way at the bottom, do they say, oh, labor. Labor is also cheaper and less protected in countries like China, which makes it easier for ports to hire more workers and switch to 24-hour operations whenever they have a backlog. Oh, yeah, labor. Like, how, how is that the end of the article, right? That should be... That's really what the crux of all of this is. You want to look at these fundamental breakdowns in the supply chain. It's the labor shortage. Not that there's more containers on the cargo ship, right? We have fundamental issues with labor. And we have competing forces like the gig economy on one end of the spectrum. On the other side of the spectrum, you have government ineptitude either willingly, either in some cases willingly, in some other cases unwilling, you know, unintentional, and in some cases probably intentional. And then you put that all together and you've just got a really prickly situation, which then leads to the next topic. Yes, I alluded to it earlier, and that is inflation. Everyone, all these experts have been saying that inflation was going to go down. Don't worry about inflation. Uh, well. Not exactly what's happening, is it? So, and the media does everything that they can do to try and down. I know this woman, Brooke, here at, uh, at Bloomberg, right? Like, why is she down, right? Unprecedented inflation, question mark? That's what CEOs see. These are uh, manufacturing and, and, and distribution CEOs that were at this conference. So that's the subject. Then this is her commentary in, in the subheader. No. Comma, prices aren't spiraling the way they did in the 1970s, 50 years ago. But expectations matter and manufacturers, manufacturing CEOs are speaking in a different language than investors. Because <laughs> the investors had $10 trillion printed into the system and someone still has to wake up in the morning and smell the coffee. And that's manufacturing CEOs that are saying, this is a big problem. Don't tell me that unprecedented inflation is an incorrect term to describe this, Brooke. And then she says here, of course, the current level of inflation isn't italicized, isn't unprecedented. Give me a break. It is notable, though. What a joke. No one can be honest anymore. No one can actually just, everyone's got to toe the line and say, oh, no, well, you know, the powers that be say that we can't recognize that this inflation thing is a real big problem. I've been talking about inflation the entire year. I've given you multiple examples 
because we work in the B2B distribution industry and I, and we see it happening all the way up in the supply chain. And I've, I've spelled this out. It's not going away and it's not getting fixed in the first half of next year either, which is now kind of, I think the new talking point. It goes back to, and a lot of what this article says is it goes back to labor. Uh, and now what you're seeing happen is you've seen full-time jobs, right? Uh, whether you're on a manufacturing line, you're, um, you're in a warehouse at a distributor, you're a truck driver, you've seen these wage increases go up, right? So you, you do a wage increase. And a lot of wage increases were done over the summer at a number of our clients. Uh, more wage increases are projected to be happening at the end of this year. So those wage increases, obviously the wage increase helps you hire new employees, but it also helps you retain the existing employees. What most distributors, manufacturers, et cetera, would rather do is give high signing bonuses, right? Because you can just give those to new employees. You don't have to retroactively give that to your entire workforce. But the fact, but that's been tried and they're they're still doing the signing bonuses. They're still running into these problems. So when you see wholesale wage increases happening across the board, which is what's happening, not once, but twice, multiple times. That cost doesn't go away. That cost is permanent. And that's what this article is getting at, whether I think unwillingly by the author is that you, what these uh, CEOs are saying, General Electric CEO, Larry Culp, he would know. He calls it like he sees it. And to him, the inflationary pressures are increasingly getting, our quote, increasingly getting structural in nature. That's what that means. Structural in nature means we're given permanent wage increases across the board, not once, but multiple times. Someone's got to pay for that. And it all trickles downhill to the consumer. That's who ends up getting screwed in all of this, right? Then she goes to show all these charts that their earnings are still okay and yada, yada. It's generally passed through. Yeah, maybe their margins get hurt, but, but right, this all cascades down on the consumer. The organizations can preserve their earnings and their margins, not maybe to the full extent, but this doesn't devour these S&P 500 businesses. Who this really screws are the consumers that have any alleged increase in wages, right? Uh, so if you, know, if, if you have uh, higher earnings, right, uh, per capita in the country, all those potential uh, wage increases per capita get erased when you have inflation like we have inflation right now. They get more than erased. I wish I could tell you how long this transitory inflation was going to last. Calling the 5.3% year-over-year gain in the headline consumer price index in August a big number and something to keep an eye on. You also have here. The reality is there's more to come, CEO David Gitlin said uh, from Carrier, which makes all the AC manufacturers and such. Carrier has already raised prices three times in an, in a, this year in an effort to stay ahead of rising costs. But the company expects to have to increase them again, perhaps as soon as early January. Woof. Woof. It's just getting started. We are having challenges in and around labor. I'd say more than us. Specifically, Eaton is a company, CEO of Eaton. I think the bottleneck really is showing up in a lot of our suppliers who can't get labor to make parts to ship to us. 
where did all the jobs go? Go watch our gig economy video. I think that is one key leg of the stool here. There's some other legs of the stool, which we'll continue to explore. But that's one key leg for sure. Got another one here on inflation to close this out. Producer inflation accelerated in August as wholesale prices rose 8.3% from a year ago. That's wholesale prices, right? So those haven't hit the your standard measure of inflation is the consumer price index. So that's the inflation to a basket of like 80,000 consumer goods. This is wholesale inflation, right? So what I'm talking about where I see it farther up in the supply chain before it hits the consumer. This is not good. This is the largest increase on record going back to 2010. The move showed that inflationary pressures are likely to persist. Yet the stock market seems fine. Yeah, it went down yesterday partially because Facebook and all these other things happened, but stock market has not recognized the true impact of inflation. And when it does, it's going to be bad news bears for a lot of these growth investors. Yikes. This stuff is not going away. Now, what we thought was temporary is now becoming structural. Very bad word when we talk about inflationary, uh, inflation being transitory and, uh, and not long-term. X. No one wants to hear structural. Very bad word. Um, so maybe to brighter topics, maybe not, certainly not for Macy's. Uh, got a fun, this one's a little lighthearted though. You know this uh, image, right? This, this billboard on Macy's. This is Macy's flagship store, Herald uh, Square, right in Manhattan, New York City. Well, that billboard is run by a separate company that rents out that space. And that separate company was wooed by Amazon to put an Amazon billboard on the Macy's store, which honestly is just hilarious. And now Macy's has gone so far to sue. To sue. And they're actually... Going back and forth, like the, the, the lawsuit seems to be proceeding. In the original deal from 1963, Macy's included a restriction that barred any retailer from advertising on the billboard forever. The landlord called that provision invalid. Hilarious. I mean, Amazon <laughs> just firing on all cylinders. You would have thought that Macy's would have just, you know, overpaid or something or uh, like... No, they're going a quarter of this. Really? Um, seems ridiculous. But. So another uh, cylinder that Amazon is firing on is Amazon now ships more parcels than FedEx. Woo. Thanks. You can see here the breakdown. FedEx uh, is now number four. Amazon, this is parcels, right? So this is like a number of packages so usps yeah it's mail right so so yeah technically they win but ups is at the front now amazon's in number two fedex is now number three if you're not including usps in the calculation wow right crazy so between these shippers that's 99 percent of all u.s parcel shipments by volume between these four players boy look at amazon in there amazon logistics if you think about marketplaces um and e-commerce in general what's the magic kind of killer app that amazon recognized 
years ago is that shipping is like the killer app, right? What was, you know, the, the killer apps when you release the iPhone, you want to text someone and send an email and make phone calls and surf the web. Well, the killer app for buying stuff online is shipping and then maybe payments. And Amazon's obviously got to play there as well. You look at this chart again. This is a volume of 2019, 1.9 billion volume for Amazon, 4.2 billion in 2020. FedEx went from 2.7 to 3.3. UPS went from 4.4 to 4.9. So will Amazon dethrone UPS next year? Certainly looking that way, isn't it? Now, you do have uh, Walmart, which is fast on Amazon's heels. And we've been very bullish on Walmart and Walmart Marketplace for years on the show. And how traditional enterprises like a Walmart can embrace new digital business models like Marketplace and can use their existing scale um, and their existing assets and and leverage that to uh, actually be a viable competitor to a tech monopoly like Amazon. But it's very hard to do that all organically, which is why we were very bullish on the Jet.com acquisition, on Walmart's plays in India with Flipkart and elsewhere. Uh, Walmart has really done a fantastic job. But outside of Walmart, you know, where are some bright spots uh, when it comes to marketplaces? And where we see marketplaces being wildly successful is B2B marketplaces. We talked a lot about B2B marketplaces. We have a top 50 B2B marketplace ranking. Go check out that report if you want to see the top 50 kind of independent B2B marketplaces in the United States. Amazon's also making waves there as well, however. Amazon Business is what they call their B2B marketplace. It has grown about 50% each year since 2018, according to eMarketer. And they, they project that um, U.S. product sales will increase 43.5% uh, to reach about $27, $28 billion in total throughput. Some of that's first-party sellers, some of that's third-party sellers, right? 3P is kind of that marketplace dynamic. 1P is more linear reselling of inventory, which Amazon Business has said that they have over half of their stuff is actually 3P, not 1P, which should fall in line with their consumer side of their business. We project Applico projects that Amazon business globally will hit about $75, $75 billion in global GMV by 2023. So in roughly two years. So sizably more than the roughly $43 billion that eMarketer is projecting in the United States. Amazon business is now in many countries in Europe and, 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 and drastically accelerating into other markets. So the other thing terribly new from this article. We already knew that Amazon uh, business was doing about $20 billion in, in sales for 2020. Amazon business has started to disclose some of their stats as they really lean in to, to put the pedal to the metal and acquire more sellers. Or you want to acquire more sellers, you kind of need to tout some volumes and stats like this to, to catch people's attention. We've been calling Amazon business from a mile away. Fortunately, Independent B2B marketplaces are actually in a much better position to compete than consumer 
B2C marketplaces, which got caught kind of flat on their heels, including the incumbent uh, e-commerce retailers like Macy's, who is now arguing over Amazon renting a billboard on their flagship store. That's what Macy's is now worried about, not can we become a marketplace. Instead, B2B marketplaces and large B2B distributors are actually still in a position where I think they could not be relegated to play second fiddle like Walmart, even though second fiddle to Amazon is a very good place to be. I think that you can see B2B marketplaces uh, and B2B distributors that might team up or partner or invest or acquire B2B marketplace um, could actually be number one in their respective vertical. So the, the B2B landscape is certainly a lot more even keeled. And I think that going back to where I started with this whole bit, looking at um, uh, Amazon logistics outpacing FedEx in terms of volume, all of these uh, service providers that are threatened by Amazon tech monopoly and then these service offerings that branch off of that, whether it's shipping or payments or financing or insurance, that future vision in B2B marketplaces needs to be much different than it was in B2C, right? If Amazon business rises to the same point of dominance that it has in B2C, that's going to be very bad, not only for the direct competitors, say the B2B distributors, but also bad for all of the other service providers, the shipping providers, the finance providers, the uh, manufacturers also, by the way, will all experience <laughs> a worse future outlook on their business in B2B distribution than it would be if you had more competition. That's why Applico is here. That's why this show is here is to help the traditional enterprises fight back and win against big tech. And so I can tell you right now, there is a lot more activity happening in B2B. Just these numbers look big and scary, but there is more than meets the eye in terms of what's going on there. So stay tuned. Going back to our traditional, now soon to be marketplace disruptor called Walmart. They just hired this person from Instacart because this guy, Seth Dallaire, was formerly now Instacart's chief revenue officer, is now joining Walmart. And this guy, Seth, basically was there and was their uh, head of Instacart's advertising business. And he helped build out the legion, the army uh, that Instacart has been on now, a hiring binge with people out of Facebook. Installed a new CEO, actually the CEO, uh, Aperva is now kind of stepping up and out really making a play for advertising revenue. So you're now seeing this. Um, I mean, we've seen Amazon just churn out uh, insane numbers on their advertising revenue. We've seen basically Instacart go all in on saying, this is how we're going to monetize. We've talked about how Instacart has really struggled to monetize because they don't hold any product and consumer, and they're, they're getting product from retailers, right? So they're not... There's, there's Instacart competitors in Europe that go up a notch in the value chain that kind of go to wholesalers. And so there's margin that you can make there. But Instacart just gets the product from the retailer. How do you make, how do you, where do you get your margin when you're bringing it to the consumer? Very hard to command any material uh, margin when, when, with that business model. So 
They've struggled to do that. Should they should they hold product on balance sheet and start to sell product directly? We saw Instacart just do a deal with uh, Fictive, one of the leading micro-fulfillment centers. So they are going in that direction. They have a huge partnership with Fictive on these MFCs. But now, you know, they can try and do rapid delivery out of a somewhat almost fully automated uh, micro-fulfillment center. Seth, the guy joining Walmart, when he was at Instacart, he was there before this recent wave of all these uh, Facebook executives. So, but what Seth was doing while he was at Instacart was actually hiring a lot of ad sales executives from Amazon. There's no other reason why Walmart would hire this guy. Walmart's going big on ads, which makes a lot of sense and they should absolutely be doing. Last topic um, is going out with a bang. Uh, and that's the Zoom bomb. And I don't mean Zoom bombing into someone's Zoom meeting. What I do mean is this ridiculous uh, 5.9 acquisition. We called it on the show. Why would they do this deal? This deal didn't seem that interesting. Just strategically, I didn't like this deal. And I've critiqued Zoom's business model because it's linear. It's not a platform. It doesn't have the defensibility that was appropriate for its valuation a while ago when I started talking about how it's Linear, it's not in plat because it's not a platform. There's no network effect. There's no supply side lock-in. It's like a not as good Netflix. It's much easier to have really aggressive competition from Google, other tech monopolies, other startups. So it's, it has even less of a moat. It's linear like Netflix, has even less of a moat than a Netflix does. And what I love about this, I love what happened. Well, for, so one thing, it was basically like an all stock deal, even though Zoom has a bunch of cash on its balance sheet. So that was weird. All stock deal. Then the stock crashed because investors realized it's not a platform company, not that defensible, going to be very hard to keep up this level of growth. Stock crashes. Now the deal is upside down because the value of the stock is backwards. Not to mention, here's the best part. A branch of the US Justice Department, mm, finally doing something right was reviewing the deal out of concern about potential foreign participation. According to a letter dated August 27th, that was sent to the FCC. Interesting. U.S. Committee is reviewing Zoom's $14.7 billion deal for 5.9 on national security grounds. Nailed it. 5.9 has operations in Russia, while Zoom has R&D staff in China. Ah. Oh. Zoom is based in San Jose, California, and founder and CEO Eric Yuan, a native of China, is a U.S. citizen. The company has a significant research and development hub in China, and last year House Speaker Nancy Pelosi referred to Zoom as a Chinese entity during an MSNBC interview. She's 100% correct. We've talked about this on the show for over a year now. This company is only a U.S. company more so by paperwork than anything in actuality. Product and the engineers are in China. Eric Yuan, he's bragged for years on how they were able to keep their R&D costs so low was because all their engineers were in China. This is a Chinese product with an American sales and marketing poncho wrapped around it. Chinese product. And you can't, as we've seen with TikTok, and we talked about this on the last episode, you can't just separate those things where we had um, 
Satya from Microsoft talking about the TikTok deal is one of the most bizarre things he's ever looked at, right? How do you, how do you legitimately decouple uh, when you have hundreds, if not thousands of product and engineering people working on something? You can't just rip those people up and out of the country of China and then move that code base overseas and expect that to work in any kind of sub three-year timeline. It just it doesn't work that way. And so sure enough, TikTok has not changed anything materially on their product development being based in China. We've covered that on the show. Zoom, same story. This stuff, once you have these R&D centers and once, not just R&D, by the way, it's, it's full on product engineering teams. Once you have the product with these heavy concentrations of product engineering teams in China, for all intents and purposes, should be considered Chinese companies. Full stop. Same thing with TikTok. Oh, TikTok's a U.S. company. Come on, right? Oh, yeah, I'll believe that when I believe that China didn't send like 50 warplanes over Taiwan this past weekend. Yeah, are you going to live in reality or not? Um, you can't trust anything that the CCP tells you. You can't trust anything that these companies that have such huge dependencies on China, right, will say, yes, of course they'll say, yes, we don't need to comply with the CCP. Yes, it's not. A, of course, it's a risk, right? If the CCP says do this, they do it. That's how it works. And by the way, every piece of data that comes in and out of that country, you cannot expect to have any level of security or non-compliance um, by these companies, whether they're registered as a U.S. company or not. You just can't. So I love the fact that certain regulatory authorities in this country are waking up to that inherent risk. That can't just be duct tape over. You can't just, oh yeah, let's just wave our wand. Zoom, yeah, just move your engineering. Not going to work. Love that. Such a bright spot. It's a great, positive way I think, to end today's show. Thank you very much for joining us. I will talk to you later.